Would you join with me in prayer one more time? Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word, your word that never changes. I thank you for your direction that's always wise. And I pray that you just open our hearts to you even as we open your word to us and fill us with your spirit. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you have been paying attention at all to this, but um, in the first six months of this year, there have been over a thousand kidnappings in Haiti. And you say, well, it's bad, but but think about this. There's only about 10 million people in Haiti. So it's a little over the population of Chicagoland. So picture if the news were reporting that in Chicagoland, in the first six months of the year, there have been over a thousand kidnappings. It's insane. The U.S. State Department has called all non-emergency government personnel out of the country. They've urged all U.S. nationals to leave the country because it's in a state of emergency. People are rioting in the streets of Haiti saying that the government isn't doing enough to take care of the gangs. At the end of July, uh, a gang broke into a Christian mission clinic and kidnapped a nurse named Alex um, uh, gone black. Uh, Dorsonville, thank you. Alex Dorsonville and her young daughter and demanded a million dollars. This gang that's known for their uh, murder and rape and torture of their, of their prisoners. U.S. State Department intervened and two weeks later she and her little daughter were returned. They're safe and they're recuperating. But what's your gut reaction? to knowing that she was taken, that they were taken. What's your gut reaction when you think about those, those kidnappers? If you, if you had the opportunity to engage with them in unsupervised interaction for a, for a few minutes, what would your reaction be? What if it were your wife and daughter that were suffering at these people's hands? CNN actually covered the story. Well, everybody covered the story. But CNN actually covered it and gave Dorsonville the opportunity to speak to her captors. And so she spoke directly to them. And she said, I want you guys to know that everything I said during my time in captivity was sincere. When I told you that my clinic doors are always open to you and anyone in need when you're sick or wounded, they were not the manipulative words of someone desperate to escape, but simply the truth. I love you in Christ, and one day I hope to hug you in heaven. She continued, I understand all of you are in search of, for happiness and satisfaction and money and power and status to fill the void in your hearts, like a, like a hole in your heart, an empty space within your heart. And you're searching for all those things in a way to, to try to fill that hole, that empty space. But I want you to know that those things will never truly satisfy you. They will never fill the void in your hearts. The only way for this hole to be filled is with the love of Jesus Christ. That's what Alex Dorsonville said in response to her tormented. That's how she chose to look at her situation. That's how she chose to look at them. And you might be tempted to say, that woman is a saint. And you're right, because she's a Christian, and every Christian is a saint, yes? Every single Christian is a holy person of the Lord. It's just that some of us live our lives in crisis moments as if our lives were set apart and holy for the Lord. 
but all of us have been given that sort of an embassy. When Dorsonville and her daughter were kidnapped, she used that as an opportunity to evangelize those who were making her and her daughter suffer. She reached out to them with Christ's love. And once released, she used that as an opportunity to evangelize the whole world. And she did it through CNN. I'm not even talking about, well, you know, TBN carried this part. CNN presented a gospel message. Thanks not only to Dorsonville, but also to the Christian reporter who was covering this and somehow snuck it through. They made a difference in the world for Christ because of how they chose to look at the world around them. It's so easy to look at the world the way the world looks at the world. We spend most of our lives hearing and learning, isn't it? Things that make us feel good are good. Things that make us feel bad are bad. We should be scared of things that frighten us. We should take comfort in things that comfort us. That's just logic, isn't it? That's just natural. That makes total sense. People who attack us are enemies. People who make us feel better are friends. Right? Are those God's priorities? Are those the world's priorities? I'm not saying those are inherently wrong, but what about all those times that they are? Is everything that makes you feel good, good for you? Is everything that makes you uncomfortable, bad for you. Does the Bible say that you should be scared of the frightening things around you? Does it? You should be stressed about the things that other people stress? Should you take comfort in the things that make you feel more comfortable? Or should sometimes those things make you uncomfortable? Are the people who attack you enemies? They may see themselves as that. Should we? Are the people who come in and make you feel better always your friends or are they sometimes your drug dealer is it always the way the world thinks it is that the way we should be looking at it i go into all this because we're in first peter and if you haven't done so already turn in your bibles to first peter chapter four we're in first peter and we've been talking a lot about suffering i would suggest to you it's quite possible that the entire book has been about suffering and you might go, well, the last couple of weeks, PK's been hitting that. I'm like, the whole thing has been about that. He's been talking about a lot of things, but it really comes down to how do you handle this? In the last couple of weeks, he started us off by saying, you know, in chapter 3, it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, because you're probably going to suffer. So why don't you suffer for doing it right instead of suffering for doing it wrong? And he's going to keep building on that concept. But you need to look at things differently than the world looks at them. Therefore, he says at the beginning of chapter 4. What's the therefore? Therefore, right? There's a context. All this stuff about suffering. Therefore, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, the way we've been talking about it, arm yourselves, a nice military term, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Not not that you should enjoy suffering or look to seek it out. That, That would be a little kooky but that the world has enough suffering in it already that suffering is inevitable. It's how you look at those difficulties, how you look at the people that you're involved with. That's what makes all the difference. Not dodging the suffering, but surfing it. Look at what Peter focuses on in in verses 11 to 8 that we talked about last week. 
when we're arming ourselves to deal with suffering, he talked about loving one another. He talked about spending quality time with one another, about praising God alongside one another. How do you deal with this? Well, it takes, it takes not only trying to muscle through it in your strength and in your faith, but engaging with other Christians. You're not in this alone. Don't do this alone. Love one another. Praise God with one another. Engage with one another. Be family. Be community. The primary way, horizontally, that we face suffering and pain in life is to reorient how you live out your embassy alongside other ambassadors. That's why John could write that we read earlier. Don't be surprised, my brothers, that the world hates you, because of course it is. This isn't your home. It's the battlefield that you're fighting on. But you're not fighting against people. You're fighting against wrongness, against sin, against ignorance, against pain-filled spite that drove all these people to attack you. You're not attacking the people, even the people who attack you. If you lash back, your neighbor's a jerk, so you're a jerk back. Your boss was mean to you, so you steal a pencil. I don't know. The different things that we do where we say, somebody did something I didn't like, so I made sure to snot back at them. Let me tell you, my brothers, even as Christians, Kent and I were talking about this the other night, even as Christians, you will do the worst things that you are allowed to do. Whatever people will chuckle at, up to the point where they go, oh, I think that was, I think he crossed the line. You will go to that line. I will be as spiteful. I will be as malicious. I will be as critical as you let me be. Because it's that echo of that sin nature in me. And beloved, if we do that as Christians, what is the world going to do? Look with better eyes. Look at the way Alex Dorsonville looked at it. Look with better eyes. We're not fighting these people. We're fighting the devil who's walking around like a lion looking for who he can devour. That's what we're fighting. He knows he's beaten, and so he's lashing out out of anger, out of fear. He's lashing out at the people. He's like, well, they attacked me. They're beating me. God's beating me, so I'm lashing back. Is that our example? Don't be surprised, my brothers, that the world hates you, John said. Peter says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering. It's almost like they're saying the same thing. Why might that be? Don't be surprised, as though something strange were happening to you. It's, it's only strange if you thought that this place was safe, if you thought that this place is comfortable. You need to look with better eyes. This place is a battlefield. It's a mission field. If you thought you were safe, careful lest you fall. Dear friends, he says, beloved, literally, beloved. I mean, talk like a pastor, not a theologian. Don't be surprised when you're suffering at the, literally, he says, fiery ordeal that you go through. Remember, this is the basic time period when Nero was crucifying Christians and lighting their living bodies on fire at night to light the main streets in Rome. Peter's world was even nastier than Haiti is at the moment. So when he's saying this, don't go, well, I don't think they understand what I'm going through. Yeah, no, probably, probably do, probably do. This was a nasty place, and the world isn't technically that much better. 
parts of it are, parts of it are more civilized, there's a veneer over things, but human nature is still the same. And we don't want to be the sum total of human nature. This place isn't our home any more than it was for our brothers and sisters back then, any more than it is for our brothers and sisters today in North Korea or Nigeria or Pakistan or Haiti. This world isn't our home. So don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal you're going through as though something bizarre were happening. Don't be so blithely comfortable in that condition white. Remember when we talked about that last week? That sense of, oh, everything's fine. Don't be so blithely comfortable in that that you're caught flat-footed. And then you, you react instinctively like the world would react to things. Because the world is surprised at our behavior. Don't be surprised when they do this. The world is surprised at what we're doing. He says, they think it's strange. Don't think it's strange when something bad happens to you. They think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood. The same flood of dissipation that they do. So they just heap abuse on you. Don't be surprised when they do what you used to do before you were a Christian. Don't you be surprised at their behavior. Live in such a way that they're surprised at yours. Don't be so naive. Instead, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, which I know can sound trite. I know, I know you're going through a lot, but you know, hey, cool. Again, I go back to Christians are being tortured. Christians are being crucified. Christians are being thrown into prison. Peter had been thrown into prison. Peter had been flogged. This is not trite. This is what it means to be a Christian. Stop what we normally, naturally would do, what the world would do. Think differently than that. And I know, I know it's, it's tempting to, well, okay, but it's not like I'm going to hear a sermon like this and go out and live my life entirely differently. Boy, Kevin, that 30 minutes changed my world. No, it won't. It won't. What's required to do that is daily letting your life be changed, daily letting your mind be changed, daily letting your spirit be changed. Like we talked about last week, that whole idea of training. Be in the Word of God every day. Be in prayer every day. Engage with other Christians every day. Change and discipline yourself. And if you say, golly, you just keep hitting the same things. I know, but I'm pretty sure you and I still struggle with this. I need to keep repeating it as long as Peter does, and I still need to hear it. So I'm afraid you're along for the ride. Anyway, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, he says. Find joy even within the suffering. I know it requires that you look at things a little differently to see joy, even if you don't feel happy. I know Alex Dorsonville didn't feel happy, but she could still find joy. Happiness and joy are only vaguely related, right? We've talked about this before. Happiness is this sensation of feeling good. Your circumstances are good. You are happy. Joy is saying, I am fulfilled. I'm satisfied. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him in, against that day. I, 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 I know I'm right with God. I know I'm satisfied with God. I know where I'm at with him. And before you dismiss that as a tritism, remember people like Alex Dorsonville, remember the context of this verse, that Paul was writing to Timothy as he was sitting in prison, awaiting his death, suffering for the gospel and saying, I am suffering, yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I believe it and am persuaded that he is able. 
real people in real situations just like you, just like you will face on Thursday of this week, real people facing real situations, really reacting the way real Christians really do, not saints with halos who aren't like you, Christians who live as if life were holy. Peter says, rejoice that you participate. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Look with better eyes so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Look at this with this eternal perspective that's a lot more far-reaching than your temporary discomforts today. Remember what he said way back at the beginning when we talked about chapter 1. He says, you you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, for a blip, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes, though it's refined by fire, that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's the same point. You're going to go through suffering. But this life is a blip. You're just passing through here. Think about what comes next. Think about where this is going. And think about how you can glorify God in this. He said the same thing in chapter 1 that he's saying in chapter 4. Because Anakana, I think it's kind of his point. I think that's what he's been getting at with all of this. When we suffer, it may not even be because we're doing anything wrong. It may be because we're doing something right. And knowing that you're doing it right, that you're living the way God sculpted you to live, that's something to find joy in. That's something you can point to and say, praise God in. So rejoice so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Unnatural though that seems. Unnatural, though that's going to seem to all the people who are surprised by your behavior, who, who ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to answer them. Remember that from chapter 3? You, you might even get the chance to answer them on CNN. Take the most of every opportunity you're given. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. A word that means joyful. Be joyful. If you're insulted, be joyful. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And the King James adds, on their part, he's blasphemed. On your part, he's glorified. Isn't that what we were created for in the first place, to glorify God? If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, if that's the whole reason you're suffering, you're blessed. I I can't help but think of, remember the time when Peter got beat up real bad in Acts chapter 5. The Sanhedrin called the apostles in, had them flogged. That's no fun. Jesus was flogged. We've talked about that. Had them flogged. Beaten so that the flesh of their back is in ribbons. Flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. That's why we're beating you. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin sobbing and broken. Yes? They left the Sanhedrin grumbling because where was God when I needed him? Yes? What's the word? They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. I was beaten. And I live rejoicing. Not because I enjoyed the beating. Not because the flesh tore under my under, under my tunic and under the leather straps and the bits of bone and the bits of metal that ripped my... I'm not happy about that. Luckily, my joy is not based on my happiness. 
I can rejoice. Why? Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Because they knew whom they had believed and were persuaded that he's able to keep that which Peter had committed to him against that day. He looked at his world with better eyes and said, I know why I'm going through this. Praise God. Now I'm going to need to rest for a couple of days. If you're insulted, Peter says, because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Which harkens back to something Isaiah had said hundreds of years before. Isaiah had said, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. The Messiah will come from that line. And, and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he's going to delight in the fear of the Lord. This Messiah will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions to the poor. He looks with better eyes than the world does. He doesn't confuse circumstances with reality. He doesn't think, oh, bad stuff means God hates me and I must be doing something wrong. He thinks, wait, bad stuff means God is still with me and I may be doing something right. How good are your eyes? In church history class, when we went through that, how many times did we find throughout history that the church grew in strength and number and vibrance under persecution versus how many times it broke down and got flabby and weak when everything was easy? I'm not saying look for trouble. Trust me, trouble will find you. Don't look for trouble. You get to pray for relief from pain. You get to pray for relief from suffering. You get to pray for relief from being in prison. You get to. That's good. Even Paul asked for that. But the big question is, why do you? Do you pray for that because you say, yes, the natural human condition is to avoid pain. I want to avoid suffering. Clearly, if we're suffering, that should be removed as quickly as possible. If so, we might be missing something. If we pray because we say, I don't like it, and I'd like it to go away, or I, I, I pray because I care about those people, and I want them to be safe, I get that. But if the entirety is that for some reason we think pain is by definition something we should automatically say we've done something wrong, or God is in process of doing something wrong, and our situation has to change, we may be missing why we're here, and what this world is naturally like. Now, having said that, suffering isn't always because we're doing something right. I mean, he says, if you're insulted because of the name, you're blessed. That's great. Is it possible you can be insulted sometimes because you're a jerk? You could be insulted sometimes because you're being a twerp. He says, if you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler, literally a busybody. Somebody who sticks their nose into other people's business in a way that is annoying. Don't justify your suffering as if you're a martyr just because you're being a jerk. I have run into people that have a genuine gift of prophecy. And I have run into people that love to tell you that you're an idiot. Because I have a gift of prophecy. That doesn't necessarily hold. Just because you think you know... Wait a minute. Just because you think you know what to tell me in my life... You may not be a prophet. You may be a busybody. You may be a jerk. 
So if I say, hey, stop it, is it because I don't like your prophecy from Jesus? Or is it that I say, you're being a twerp? Now, it might be tempted to say, well, it's not like I'm a murderer. Remember what John wrote? Anyone who doesn't love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, just as surely as Cain was. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Or Jesus argued, you've heard it said to the people long ago, don't murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, right? But I tell you, anyone who's even angry, who's burning with indignant contempt with his brother, will be subject to judgment, just as surely as any murderer. To give full reign to your anger, to justify your contempt for someone else, to hate another child whom Christ died for because he loves so dearly, that's character assassination. And it's a character assassination that we justify because we're so angry about the stuff going on in this place, as if this place were our home. And we will do as much as we feel justified in being able to be allowed to do. But that's not what we were sculpted to do or to be, beloved. It's not the embassy that has been given to us by our Lord to live out. Think about what Paul said. He said the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, whatever other commandments there may be, are summed up in one rule. This one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Or as Paul had said in the chapter before, live in harmony with one another, don't repay evil for evil. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with the people who love you. Live at peace with the people who are like you. Live at peace with everyone. So that's Peter and John and Jesus and Paul all saying the same thing. Beloved, at what point should we listen? Because I know I still struggle with this. Maybe you don't, but I need to preach this as long as I keep needing to hear it. When you suffer, don't lash back at your fellows so they suffer too. I can't help but think about, I don't know if you knew this, today is actually the official end of the Civil War. Andrew Johnson went, nope, it's done. It's actually technically over now. But once it's over, what do you do? I mean, the world knows exactly what to do when you've won a war, right? You take all their stuff. And you say, this is now us land. And that's what some of the people, in fact, most of the people uh, in, in, in government really fought Abraham Lincoln about what to do after the war. Democrats fought him because they were pro-slavery. And they said, you, you're pro-black. And they attacked him for it. The radical Republicans were so anti-slavery that they said, we need to punish the South. We need to take all their stuff, all the landowners, we need to break up their stuff and give it to other people. All the, all the, the, the people in power, we need to remove all of them and put Northerners in charge. We need to imprison everybody who served in the Confederate Army. But both Lincoln and Grant had a different perspective. They were reminded, and they continued reminding people, that we did not fight this war to win. We didn't fight this war to have victory over the South. We didn't fight the war to punish the South. We fought the war to heal the Union and to make everyone free. So Abraham Lincoln said, nope, instead of doing all the stuff that everybody else wants me to do, all you need to do is basically two things. I want you to sign an oath that you will support the United States of America, the Union, and you will free every slave right now. Then we're cool. 
In fact, when everybody showed up at Appomattox Courthouse to surrender, they all brought in their sidearms and their swords and their horses to turn over to the, to the victorious army, as you did, and Grant handed them all back. It said, no, this wasn't about beating you. We're brothers. They're yours. In fact, all the Confederates looked so hungry that he said to his, his billeting officers, I need you to make sure that they got fed, they get taken care of, get any medical needs that they have taken care of, do it quickly so that they can get themselves home and take care of their crops because we're about the end of the season. At the actual signing of the, of, of the surrender, when Lee came in, Grant made sure that the two guys he had running it were Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, my personal favorite guy in the Civil War, and Eli Parker, his adjutant, both of whom were extremely strong Christians. And when Lee saw Parker, who was a full-blooded Seneca, he said, well, at least we have one real American here today. And Eli Parker looked at him and said, sir, we are all Americans here today. They chose to look with better eyes. I don't look at you and see a defeated enemy. I look at you and see a brother brought back home. Isn't that the whole point of the prodigal son? It's not that we see he's humbled. It's that we see he's back home. The rest we can deal with. Look with better eyes. Don't see the enemy. See only two kinds of people, right? There are those who are your brother and sister in Christ and those who you want to be. There is no one else on the planet. So think about how you look at the people around you, how you look at them. Are they enemies? Are they allies? Are they a mission field? Because all this is still in this context of how you deal with suffering, how you deal with problems, how not to echo the fears and anxieties and responses that we all learn from the world. He says, if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. You can be joyful, even in the midst of the suffering. It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or a busybody. Don't be evil. Don't be a twerp. Don't invite suffering on yourself. However, if you do suffer as a Christian, if you actually are doing it right, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name because you do. You've been given that family name. Christian means little Christ. You're not just Nicky Andrews. You're Nicky Andrews Christian. That's your family name. That's your tartan. Christian. And if we do, if we share that family name, what an awesome privilege. I can overlook a lot of four-letter words. I used to play football. I used to box. I know how that goes. Hung out in many a locker room. I, I heard everything. I can roll with a lot. Even if I find them foul, even if I think they're inappropriate, I can roll with it. You know what I couldn't handle? Is when people are like, oh my God! Jesus! That's when I'm going to always step in. I can roll with a lot, but that I will always say, I'm sorry, that's my family. That's my Lord. Don't do that. What's interesting, I never had anybody call me on it. I have consistently always told people, please don't do that. In all the years, and all the people I've ever done, nobody has ever said, well, what's wrong with you? When I've said, that's family. That's my Lord. That name means something, and you're using it as a mundane vulgarism. In all the years, nobody has ever said, prude, 
They've always said, oh, I'm sorry. I think that's statistically significant. Don't be ashamed. Praise God that you bear that name. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed of that. But praise God that you bear that name. Wear it proudly. Take joy that you're doing it rightly, even if that's why you're suffering. For it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what's the outcome going to be for those who don't even obey the, uh, the gospel of God? I mean, that's sobering. He's been so encouraging, but he says, gosh, think about this. If we all stand before the justice seat of God, we're going to give an account for what we did. And if that's sobering, if we as Christians need to soberly examine our hearts to see if we really are looking with better eyes than the world gives us, if it begins with us, if that really is sobering, what's the outcome going to be for the people who aren't even trying to do it right? Or as he elaborates, quoting from Proverbs, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The people who are sold out to it. Because the fact is, it's not good people who go to heaven and bad people who go to hell. Right? It's not. It's the way the world thinks about it. It makes sense to the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's perfect people who are saved and imperfect people who go to hell. Oh, that one I'm not even being facetious about. Only perfect people go to heaven. And anyone imperfect goes to hell. And if you say, well, not really, you're missing it. Only perfect people go to heaven. That's why the disciples came in later and said, wait, so even a rich young ruler who keeps all the commandments, does everything right, even he can't make it in just by being really, really awesome? When the disciples heard that, they were greatly astonished and said, well, who can be saved? Which is why we're really, really fortunate that even though we are not perfect, our Savior is. And that his perfect blood covers us and perfects in us what we can't. That his perfect blood covers our ledger so that when God looks at the ledger, he sees his own perfect blood because there's no way that we can make it in otherwise. Only perfect ledgers make it into heaven, not good ones. And if we say anything less than that, we are slighting the gospel because we're calling it pleasant news instead of really good news. Because no matter what I do, I can never make it in on my own. But praise God, my Savior is perfect. And he loves me enough to say, here, let me purchase perfection for you. Now live that out. If it's that hard for the righteous to be saved, what's going to become of the ungodly and of the sinner? You've got to change that way of looking. If it's that hard for them to do that, what, what's going to happen? So then, he says, this is the conclusion. So then, those who suffer according to God's will, because God himself allowed you to suffer, wrap your head around that those who suffer that way should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good and trust their lives he says literally which is the same phraseology used back in chapter two when they hurled their insults at christ he said back in chapter two he didn't retaliate he didn't lash back and when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly isn't that what he said and now he says exactly the same thing you guys want to follow christ's example well, then do that. When 
They hurl their insults at you. Don't retaliate. When you suffer, don't make threats. Don't lash back. Instead, entrust yourselves to him who, tr- who judges justly. Because if that's what our Lord did in his time of suffering, and we're supposed to follow his example, let's do that. It's not something to find pleasant. Suffering isn't pleasant. That's the whole nature of it. But it's something you can find joy within. It's like the, like the surgeon that cuts out a cancer. You don't have to like the surgery. You don't have to like recovering from the surgery. But would you prefer, would you prefer the, the life-hurting surgery or the life-ending cancer? An amazing number of us, in, when the rubber hits the road, say, I kind of would prefer the comfortable life-ending world and its mindsets than the life-complicating suffering that I engage in as a Christian. I, I kind of want to follow the example of the world that's poisoning me more than the God who's saving me. Because it's easier. Because a round peg slides into a round hole nicely. But the square peg chafes. It's so easy to crumple under the pressure, to pray for release rather than for strength. But those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good, even if that's why you're suffering. You're suffering because you're doing good. Not only because you've been bought at a great price by your Savior, but also because we know that the cost is worth the benefit of being right with God. Joy trumps happiness every day. And sometimes, wackadoodle though it sounds, happiness can even come from joy, even when the surrounding circumstances wouldn't have it. If we genuinely believe that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, if we genuinely believe that, then rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I didn't plan on making it out of this life alive. I don't. But I do pray that I make it out with my faith strong and intact and active and honoring to God. I've quoted a Pictetus to you before, but I like him. He said, people are not afraid of things, but about their ideas about things. We fear all the stuff that we understand about things. We fear because of how we look at our situations and the people around us. Take a clue from Alex Dorsonville. Take a clue from Peter. Take a clue from those who have gone before. When you are in the midst of things, Stop and think, what would Christ do? How do I honor him? And how do I find joy in the midst of this? That's what changes the world. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much. I thank you for the the ability not to judge by what we see or by what we hear, but to judge by what we know. Lord, I thank you for the wisdom that comes from having your spirit, your strength, your ability, your understanding. And I pray that you be glorified by everything we say and everything we do and why. In Jesus' name, amen.
please join us in singing our closing song. Stand if you're able.